What also helps is to ask for social support. And that means that you, uh, you say to the people around you, okay, I want to eat less candy, so please, when I come in, don't uh, have that candy jar uh, right in front of me. Is there such a thing as an ideal diet? And is there a place for animal products in a climate-friendly diet? And how can we effectively change the way we eat and make sure that this becomes a new habit that persists in time? Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tapir. Gergelecta. Sakula Ijaya. Food. Change. Slow Food. The podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Slow Food, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the beauty and complexity of good, clean and fair food systems. I'm Valentina Gritti, I'm your host and a Slow Food Youth Network activist. On this podcast we meet changemakers around the world who are working towards a more sustainable food system and promote a slow lifestyle. This podcast is part of a small series dedicated to the Plant in the Future challenge. With Plant in the Future, we take a deep dive into our food system and its challenges. We get inspired to cook up plant-rich meals, learn about agroecology as a solution and get into action. When I was working with my Slow Food team on the challenge, I thought we could make this podcast series to deep dive a bit more into the thematics we touch and so create some extra tools for all the planters. Yes, we call planters all the people that take part into the challenge. For more information on the challenge, please visit plantingthefuture.slowfood.com, link in the podcast description. This podcast is all about changing the way we eat. But before digging into the topic of behavioral change, I would like to get an overview of what a sustainable and healthy meal could look like. So the best person to interview for me is Francesco Scaglia. Francesco Scaglia is the culinary lead at Eat Foundation, a Norwegian foundation working with different food systems agents to promote systemic change towards a healthier and more sustainable food production and consumption. Our food tradition right now, it's very much tainted by uh, the, the economic boom of, uh, you know, the world had after World War II and uh, we need to move from that because this is not sustainable for all of us. Uh, and so we need to make a change because it's important to do it, but you cannot make a change without making it a tasty change. The planetary health diet is a reference diet that was created with the first uh, It Lancet uh, uh, research. And that it's a diet that uh, practically translates the big question, which is, can we feed a population of 10 billion people in 2050 a healthy and sustainable diet? So this research actually became so important because it's, it's the first one that combines these two aspects. So not only sustainability and not only health, but through different modeling systems uh, intertwines uh, the two aspects that are fundamental for our development uh, and puts together all the different data and benchmarks to achieve a healthy and sustainable diet for all. Great. But now I'm going to ask you the question. So how... Uh, can we follow a diet that is good for ourselves, but also for the planet? I think uh, that if you ask anybody at this point in 2024, 
people will know that obviously implies uh, it's strongly uh, directed towards uh, plant-based, obviously. Uh, there is a percentage of meat consumption, which is kind of low. Uh, and obviously it's uh, uh, more towards uh, lesser fat meat, uh, you know, like uh, white meats like chicken and turkey or uh, more sustainable blue food like mussels and oysters and anchovies and less obviously pork and cows which are uh, not so good for both your health and the environment it has a high uh, level of uh, legumes uh, intake uh, carbohydrates and whole grains uh, mainly these would be the three most important points we're talking about a diet that is imagined on the average person so there are so many different uh, possibilities uh, when you're talking about this you know so obviously you cannot talk about this specific person that is uh, 63 years old and lives no you cannot do this you're talking about uh, 8 billion people so we're talking about an average diet when you're going public worldwide uh, it's you have to make it simple and you cannot be too specific. I cannot suggest a diet for the pastoralist communities of Ethiopia that might need or have the possibility to eat a lot of meat, for instance, much more than you know, what would ever be recommended. Uh, or the fisher community uh, in Uruguay. I don't know. Like, they cannot be that specific. We're talking about average. But so we can still have a space also for animal um, proteins or animal products in a sustainable diet? So you can have a little bit of meat, uh, but uh, I mean, we do know that there are certain uh, um, bad sides of consuming, uh, consuming meat. So we recommend, uh, you know, as less as possible. You don't have to take away your lasagna for, uh, for uh, Christmas. This is not, I mean, celebrate, enjoy yourself. But on the day to day, you can skip, for instance, the uh, cheese and ham toast uh, or, uh, you know, the, the easy stuff that you can actually have something else and you just don't think about it. And can you give us a concrete example of how uh, or like what um, sustainable and healthy meal could look like? Put it this way, 50% of your plate has to be fruit and veggies, then you have a part of vegetable proteins, then you have a part of whole grains, carbohydrates, and then, you know, there is a little bit of salt, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of animal proteins as well you can have. But uh, rule of thumb, 50% fruits and veggies, fill your plates with the greens and the oranges and, and the yellow, you know, on the red, you know, all these kind of colors, very nice for you. And then have some stuff that, you know, can actually, you know, also part of uh, an enjoyable plate, you know, like, I don't know, some cheese or, you know, like some eggs. I mean, let me say another thing. Everything is developing. We do know very little and we always keep in mind what we learned at the beginning and not what has been translated to eggs, for instance. We've been told so many times that eggs, you know, cholesterol and blah, blah, blah. Actually, it's proven that, you know, eggs are not that bad for you and you could have on a healthy side, for instance, more eggs than what we have dreamed, even what we have pictured before. So everything is developing. We need to study, we need to research more because what we say right now might change in five, ten years. This was Francesco Scaglia, Culinary Lead at It Foundation.
Okay, now that we know what the planetary health diet looks like, let's get some insights on how we can start putting this diet into practice. So Midlast Monday and the John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future have been spending years in influencing individuals and communities to choose healthier meals and to reduce meat consumption as well. So to learn from their experiences, I arranged an online interview with Dana Smith and Becky Ramsing. Dana Smith is campaign director for Meatless Monday, based in New York City. Meatless Monday is a global movement that encourages everyone to skip meat one day a week. It's sort of the beginning step to making change in your diet. And Becky Ramsing works at the John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. We're an academic center and we sit in the School of Public Health. We work at the intersections of um, food systems and public health. So um, I have a background in nutrition and um, as a dietitian, and so this is a really great place for me to be in, in the center of the food system. Dana and Becky have actually been collaborating for many years, so that's why it made sense for me to interview them together. We have been science advisors to Meatless Mondays since it started in 2003, and I've really enjoyed that role. That's been a major part of my role at CLF, that we call it. And I um, really have enjoyed working with the Meatless Monday team, and specifically Dana. Do you think there is like a general need of shifting towards a more plant-rich diet, or is it specific to some countries? You know, as we know, agriculture accounts for over 30% of greenhouse gas emissions, global agriculture. Um, and much of that is, is from um, animal products. And, and in fact, just livestock alone, so beef, dairy, cattle, Poultry, all, all the animal production produces about 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So animal production is really driven by consumption habits. And globally, we do eat a lot more meat. Our consumption over, if you look at the global numbers, have gone up over the last you know, 20 to 50 years. But this is where things really start to diverge. Um, High-income countries, such as the United States, where we are, and much of Europe, consumes a lot more meat overall and also per person. Um, and people in these countries tend to get plenty of protein in their diet, um, but they also overconsume uh, refined grains, sugars, salts, um, and oils. And they underconsume things like vegetables and fruits and legumes. Um, lower middle income countries, for a lot of the communities and groups uh, within those lower middle income countries, they don't get enough protein and their animal protein intake is really low. And this is really important for subgroups like you know, children and uh, pregnant mothers. They need more calories, protein, also micronutrients um, in general. An interesting study that we did at CLF is that we um, looked at diets, the greenhouse gas emissions by country. And, but, but before we did it, we tried to get, the, get those diets that are up to a, a, an adequate amount of protein and micronutrients. And what we found is for many countries who eat much lower amounts of protein and, and micronutrients, just to get them to a diet that's a healthy, thriving diet, their greenhouse gas emissions would have to go up. But yet, the higher income countries, like in the European countries in the United States, um, for us, we need to bring that protein down, those animal protein down, and that, and that would also um, result in healthier diets for us. So really the burden of this shift toward lower animal um, consumption, animal food consumption, is on higher income countries. And, and, it's, and that just, just shows how important that is. It's not like lower income countries really are, and communities 
don't have any, you know, any responsible action. It's not like they need to go and have Western style diets with high meat and processed foods. They also need to really focus on how they raise those animals and, you know, in more regenerative ways. And um, how can they use more, come back to maybe more of their cultural diets um, that, that have, they're great. Most cultures have really good legume dishes and vegetable dishes. And so um, not doing it the way that we did it <laughs> in the westernized country, but really making more sustainable, healthy shifts. Thanks, Becky. And Dana, since you have the um, also international uh, perspective from Meatless Monday, I also wanted to ask you how people can approach Meatless Monday from uh, all these different countries. Yeah, um, that's a great question because our global movement is, is really important to us. And, um, you know, what I'd like to say is it's really a grassroots movement. We don't... Um, sort of tell people what to do. We're happy to guide them and provide um, research or, or any kind of um, resources they may need. But essentially, we encourage people to adopt the campaign to what's important to them. So each country could could do what's relevant to them. We say we're in over 40 countries, but there's Meatless Monday practices, you know, on a very broad level. Um, and we started in 2003. We actually just celebrated our 20th anniversary. It slowly spawned into this international movement. And so some early adopters that people might know about, and they're just sort of passionate leaders. Um, in the UK, Paul McCartney started um, Meat Free Monday. Um, and then David Young founded Green Monday in Hong Kong, which is currently um, grown into a major producer and distributor of plant-based meats. Um, but as I say, it's really just meant to be flexible and um, adopted in a country or a region specific settings and their context and based on what they like to eat and um, you know what some of their culinary tradition traditions are. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Um, and it's hard to pick out a few because we really um, appreciate what everyone's doing across the, the globe. But for example, in um, Brazil, they have a huge campaign. It's called Segunda Sem Carne. Um, and there it's organized by the leading vegetarian society. And um, they do great work getting meatless meals into schools, specifically in Sao Paulo. They um, feed over 3 million students in more than 8,000 schools, and that number may even be, be old. I think it's probably elevated since um, I have that data. Um, and so that's a great example. And we do something similar here in the US. In New York City, uh, Meatless Monday was um, taken on in the public school system where they feed more than 1 million students every day. And I think the great um, thing about that and the testament to that is that they added on a second day called Plant Powered Fridays. And then uh, a campaign we love in, that took place with Slow Food um, and started in Italy was called Let It Bean. And that was a way to spotlight um, local beans and, and their producers in cities throughout Italy. And um, all of these are just a way to highlight like the health and environmental uh, benefits of traditional dishes and recipes that have been passed on for generations. So those are just a few examples, but I think the overall um, great, great part and the cool part is that everyone across the globe is taking this small action. Um, it's like a common cause that when 
um, these small numbers add up. And so they're resulting in big changes for our health and for the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, it's super interesting how like, with these key little steps, like you really make a huge impact uh, all over the world. As I said at the beginning, it's really difficult to introduce changes into our diets, regardless the type of changes. So it can be that uh, someone wants to eat more plant-rich meals, someone wants to quit sugar. In any case, it's very difficult to change our habits. Becky, do you have any suggestions, any tips for our listeners (laughs) for their New Year's resolutions? (laughs) Now they can stick to their dietary changes yeah sure that's a it's a it's a it's a hard one <laughs> but one thing we do know i mean we're pretty confident that big changes don't usually stick it's hard to make a big change stick unless there's something you know life-changing that has happened to cause a, you know someone to, to to make a big change but typically if you say i'm just gonna i'm gonna become vegan um on the first of january it doesn't you know by february you're probably you know not vegan anymore <laughs> um it's it's hard to make those big shifts it happened um, to me as well like oh yes I'm not vegan. <laughs> After one month, like, you know what? <laughs> you're, you're a living exactly, example. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But the, so what we see is the most successful changes do start small. Um, picking one, two, or three actions seems to be, like, the key. And, like, focusing on those. Like, here's three things I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to, you know, when I eat out for lunch, I'm going to, you know, try a plant-based dish or I mean make meatless money for example and one day a week I'm going to do this but other things that you can do at the market you know trying a new bean every week you know those are the kind of things that you can do that are small I'll add the other thing that really helps us stick to new food choices and habits is personal experience it has to be relevant to me you know I know we're talking about big issues like climate and environment and those are really important and vital but what really makes an individual make a change how they behave is health and or their feelings and their comfort and their taste and so you need to bring it back to uh, a personal connection and and I think when that personal connection happens they're also more able to think more broadly about the climate and the environment so like taste accessibility ease are really big keys to keeping changes Um, no one wants to eat a food that's unsatisfying or tasteless that's not going to last very long accessibility is really like is also being able to prepare the food and learning how to purchase it and buy it and eat it and this is where things like taste tests or cooking classes or recipes are really helpful in um, you know having people experience that that new food or new you know new new way of preparing something and then ease how does it fit into my lifestyle you know do i have time and the confidence to prepare it on you know on a regular basis or do i you know is it something i need three hours to prepare well if i'm a busy you know mom i'm not going to do that so I would just add one really interesting study we did is we surveyed people who have received the meatless, the weekly Meatless Monday newsletter that they send out. They send out every Monday. There's this great newsletter with recipes and ideas. And, and we did a survey, got a great response and asked people, like, what else have you done? Do you still do Meatless Monday? And um, have you made other changes? And we did find clearly and significantly that people who you know, followed Meatless Monday or even had received that newsletter for, you know, for several years. They eat less meat on other days of the week, not just Monday. They purchase less meat at the market. They would try new meatless meals when they were at a restaurant or out eating out. And so they they were making these changes, you know, further than just Meatless Monday. So that was really encouraging for us to hear. 
how did you make this uh, magical newsletter, Dana, <laughs> to convince everyone to, uh, <laughs> to create a magical I newsletter? I mean, it really boils down to recipes. Yeah. And I think the other thing that we seem, it seems to fit with a lot of behavior change theories is, this, is that, that reminder. Um, you know, you can, have the, you can ha have the motivation to make the change. You can know how to make the change. But sometimes it's harder to make those connections. You need a little spark. Uh, you know, to actually get you to do that change. And you know, receiving that newsletter or seeing the social media post on Monday, those might be that spark uh, that, that, that remind you to make that change. Or like you know, having those things available in a, you know, if, you if you have a restaurant or food service, you know, reminding people and having those um, items highlighted and available, that those are the things that kind of spark you to make those change. We call those nudges. And do you think it's easier like to add things to your diet instead of like quitting things because I was thinking like for example for myself no apart from like my vegan failed experience but like <laughs> if you tell me um, yeah I don't know you have to quit meat maybe instead of thinking about quitting meat I could say okay I'm gonna add a, a day in the week in which I cook beans or like I add more beans to my diet no like in my brain at least like this works better but is this just with me or is it something that <laughs> I, I think you're hired Valentina yeah we're, we're gonna hire you <laughs> because exactly what you're saying is um, how we try to position the messaging it's not about losing something it's about gaining something um, there was one chef that we worked with and he used to say to us I mean, think about vegetables. There's so many varieties and beautiful colors. I mean, you look at a plate of vegetables and they're green and orange and it's the rainbow and they're gorgeous. And he's like, and then you look at meat and it's like brown or gray, you know, there's nothing. And, and that's how, and it's really true about like adding this variety and this beautiful rainbow to your plate as opposed to losing something. Um, so I think you, you are right in, the, in what you're thinking. Um, is the way other people are thinking, the way we approach it, because it's really, um, it's really a benefit. It's not a loss. Yeah, and, and we definitely don't like, you know, people really push back against taking away something, um, especially in our, you know, in our, you know, in the United States, no one wants to hear that you're taking away something that they, that's their right or they deserve or, you know, that their comfort. So yeah, adding on is always a great way to talk about it. So yeah, we like to talk about more fruits and vegetables, more beans and, um, rather than, you know, and I know the name meatless Monday often gets a lot of, you know, pushback because you're saying meat less, but that is really, it picks up and everyone talks about it. So that alliteration that meatless Monday is working. So, but yeah, it's, it's, but and meatless Monday as a campaign does a great job of this talking about the, the pluses. And yeah. so Dana, could you tell us something about how do you keep people committed and like, what are some key elements that you'd use also to get like people involved? Yeah, that's a great question um, because we do rely heavily on, on advocates and ambassadors. But um, I would say a lot of what Becky spoke about a little bit earlier in terms of you know behavior change and making it, it easy and simple and not overwhelming. Um, and we always say, just make it fun. Um, do a meatless Monday meal with your friends or your family or your coworkers. And it doesn't need to feel burdensome. It should 
actually be easy and fun, and it is. Um, and you could do that by looking up and trying new recipes. So maybe you challenge yourself um, every Monday to try a new plant-based recipe, or maybe you task yourself to try a veggie you've never tried before. Um, you know, go to the store and see if there's anything like you've never tried and challenge yourself to try it. Um, and then we always encourage people to, you know, get, get educated so you could read books. There's a ton of documentaries. There's one out right now called um, You Are What You Eat on Netflix that um, tracks twins where one is on a plant-based diet and one's on an omnivore diet and they look at the results and I won't give it away, but I encourage people to watch it because it's really interesting. Um, and yeah, I think one of the easiest things is just think about foods that are familiar to you. So if you like tacos, make a plant-based taco um, that can replicate that and look at recipes and it could be um, tofu and mushrooms and nuts and all sorts of things so that you're staying in your comfort zone and you're not missing things that you would otherwise you know, miss if you cut it out. Um, and then, of course, we always say try a, a restaurant, either a fully plant-based restaurant or try restaurants that serve good plant-based options, which I think many do now. Um, and that's always a fun way to gather friends and, um, you know, try something you might not try. And then lastly, as I say, you know, check out our website, which is meatlessmonday.com. Um, we've got a ton of resources. We have all the recipes. Thank you so much. That was super interesting and super useful to have this conversation with you. Oh, this has been really good. I, I mean, I think the only thing I would, you know, add and, you know, talking about this, you know, this protein, um, you know, focusing on protein as part of our, you know, more sustainable, healthy diets is, you know, protein is, there's all, it's key, but also, like you said, Valentina, all the other things are, you know, you can't lose the plants and the vegetables and all the good part, the whole grains. And um, if we just focus on taking some, taking meat off, we might replace it with something that's not as healthy. So how can we really, you know, ultimately shift to healthier diets overall? And there's so much out there. Um, so that's why I love the whole focus of, of this Meatless Monday, all they do, because they don't just say, you know, if you take away meat, you might just eat cheese. <laughs> and so, you know, just talking about how we can really have more plant-rich forward diets and that really support, um, you know, the thriving of our communities and, and our farmers. So these were Dana Smith and Becky Ramsing. And before ending this episode, I wanted to get some more practical tips on how we can eat better, but also on how we can keep our new habits last longer. So I visited the Dutch Nutrition Center in The Hague, which in Dutch is called Het Fooding Centrum. Hi, I'm Lisbeth. Come in. Welcome. This is our real studio. Wow. At the Fooding Centrum, I met with Lisbeth Felema, an expert in behavior change. Maybe we can start with a, a general introduction mm -hmm. about the Fooding Centrum for people also outside of the Netherlands that are listening yeah. to the podcast. Yeah, uh, the Netherlands Nutrition Center, yeah, that's, that's us. Uh, we are here in The Hague and we work here with 80 persons. And our main goal is to help consumers in the Netherlands to... Um, well, to have healthy and sustainable eating habits and also that they choose uh, food that is safe and that they also, when they prepare food themselves, that they uh, do that safely. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, we are also trying to change the food environment because it's very 
hard to eat healthy and sustainable in the current food environment and we try to try to improve that so that it's easier to make healthy and sustainable choices uh, for example we try to uh, change the food offer in in school canteens or in works at cafeterias uh, but also we like that for example children's marketing that that's that it's uh, forbidden and people uh, also know us from the wheel of five and that is actually all the scientific knowledge um, translated into a communication model and it says what you should eat uh, yeah what a proper healthy sustainable food pattern looks like so uh, mm -hmm. that's well everything within the wheel of five if you uh, have that for uh, on a daily basis uh, that's good for your health and you also have a little bit of room space to eat something what's not in the wheel of five like candy and okay. uh, sweets and um, and that uh -huh. kind of stuff so the wheel of five is like the the main uh, yeah that's our main of your yeah meal, that's our say. main communication model uh -huh. and it's good to know that we are funded uh, only by uh, two ministries uh -huh. uh, the ministry of uh, health and uh, the ministry of agriculture and uh, food quality and so we don't have any we don't uh, receive any money from food industry so we are yeah. we try to be uh, well as uh, independent as possible I asked Lisbeth whether the Wheel of Five is in any way connected to the planetary health diet. If you guys remember, at the beginning of the podcast, I interviewed Francesco Scaglia on the planetary health diet. So Lisbeth told me that, of course, sustainability is taken into account by the Nutrition Council of the Fooding Centrum, but sometimes, in a way, you also have to find a compromise between health and sustainability. So, uh, for example, in 2015, when they checked all the lit literature again, they said, okay, for your health, is the best thing to do is to eat uh, fatty fish two times a week, but that's not sustainable. And uh, let's say, well, it's better to eat fish once a week because it's still, you have the health uh, profits from it, but it's more sustainable to eat only one uh, one time, uh, one portion of uh, fatty fish a week. Mm -hmm. um, but eat lancet, of course, is the, uh, that's the food pattern when you eat within the boundaries of one, one globe. Mm -hmm. And we are now, um, yeah, checking all our um, uh, recommendations again. And we are also checking, can we make it even more sustainable or can we translate for people who want to eat within one planet, uh, um, yeah. How can they do that? Um, but for now, in the, in the Wheel of Five, the proteins is already 50-50 from plant-based versus animal-based uh, protein. Um, for me as a um, behavior uh, expert, we're also checking what's better to help people change behavior, to say that they should reach, well, uh, a behavior that is very far from what they are doing now, but like being honest with them, if you really want to save the earth, go to, uh, well, you, sh you should, shouldn't eat meat or you should only eat 200 grams a week. Or is it better to uh, help people make small steps and if everyone takes a small step and then another step, so then um, we can take them all on a, on a movement. And that's quite hard to, to uh, decide what, what's a good strategy to have the, the most uh, mm -hmm. impact on uh, the behavior of, of Dutch yeah. consumers. 
And what do you think is the best? <laughs> well, <laughs> our strategy is to promote small steps uh -huh. um, because we know that if um, we have a, um, a lot of reactants easily when we would say, okay, we can't eat meat anymore. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would say, uh, shut up. I don't want to hear. I love my meat. You are taking it away from me. I don't want that. So, uh, yeah. We don't want to have this uh, effect. We want to make it easy for everyone to take small steps. And of course, we we want them to take bigger and bigger and more steps. Mm -hmm. But um, you have to choose for a strategy. Why do you think it's so difficult to shift our diets? Well, um, there are s several answers. Let's start with that uh, our behavior is, uh, and especially our food choice behavior is, uh, for the, the biggest part is automatically behavior induced automatically. And that's because we want to use the least of energy um, in the things we do on a daily basis. And that, that also goes for the cognitive effort, like thinking of about things. So we want to be efficient with that. And it's hard to change this automatic behavior. So that's that's one thing. But sorry, do you mean like automatic in the sense that like we prepare always like the same things yeah like... yeah for example if uh -huh. you go you have your breakfast you don't really have to think of okay what am i gonna take for breakfast it's mm -hmm. you mainly always take the same breakfast or you have it all um you don't really have to think about mm -hmm. what to take in the morning you you come from the the bathroom and you take your clothes and then you go to your kitchen and then ta-da, uh. you start making your breakfast. And it's usually it's, it's, it's every day the same or maybe in the weekends is something different, but also that is sort of automatically a, a behavior. And um, it will take effort to change this behavior. And then we have um, something what makes it difficult to change your behavior is the way we are wired, I would so to say. We have this innate preference for sweet and, and fatty products, uh, food products. Um, that's from a long time ago when we didn't know when will we eat again. So when we see that energy-dense food, we want to have it. And in the uh, food environment we live in these days, we also call it the obesogenic food environment that we are confronted with very nice sweet fatty energy dense foods mm -hmm. we every time we see it we we smell it we are thinking oh i want to have it so that's quite hard to although you want to eat healthier or more sustainable if you see that food every time you all the time you have to say no i'm not gonna take it i'm not gonna take it um i ate a brownie on the way so you oh, yeah, you're also a human being, and so that's an innate preference, and you have the feeling of being rewarded if you eat it. That's the mm -hmm. system of our uh, of human beings. That if you eat that, you you have a reward feeling when you ate had, had that brownie. <laughs> and then we also have this. Maybe you felt a little bit guilty because you want to eat healthier, healthy, so you feel a, a cognitive dissonance, mm -hmm. and you are. Uh, try to, well, solve that by saying, yeah, but I had a small lunch or I will go to the gym later on <laughs> and or I can, uh, I'm not uh, overweight, so it's fine. And that's okay, because if we had, hadn't had that system, we would be depressed all the time. 
So it's hard, you have to put effort in, in changing automatic behavior. We have that innate preference. And then you have the physical food environment and also the marketing, the price. Um, you were confronted with brownies on the way towards our building. That's what it makes uh, it difficult. And then as a last reason, uh, but there are more reasons, of course, is the social norm. Mm -hmm. So we're also used to eat um, what people around us, what they are eating. We want to uh, conform to, uh, to the people we, we are surrounded by and also by what the most people do. So that's the norm. Um, so if you are in a group with people um, who always eat meat and you will invite them to a dinner party and you make a vegetarian uh, meal, they will think, hey, oh, I miss the meat. Or, uh, and that's for you, It's if you hear that, that's hard to hear. Or, uh, for example, on a party where everyone is drinking alcohol, it takes some effort to, well, not to drink and to say, yeah, um, I'm not drinking. And so when we really want to change, at least like one thing, no? because mm -hmm. you already mentioned that it's difficult to, to change like the whole diet mm -hmm. at once. So yeah. like we would start like step by step. Yeah. But then would you suggest like to to go through the things that you just mentioned. So for example, like analyze like your daily routine and all of that, or how would you- Yeah, you could start with, with analyze your, your daily routine and think of the reason that you want to change your eating habits, uh, because it's good to have this motivation. And sometimes people say, oh, I just want to lose five kilograms, but it's better if you can say, I want to fit this jeans again, or I want to play with my uh, children. Um, without being exhausted but then it's good to think of a small steps to start with uh, for example if you want to eat less meat and you eat meat five times a week for example just first you think okay what do I do now I eat meat five times a week maybe start with one day uh, extra uh, a vegetarian day so four times meat instead of five and then you have to think of uh, a way to, to execute that behavior, like very specific. You have to think of, okay, maybe I can, on that day, I make something with a mimic, for example, sausage, and you also have the vegetarian version of a sausage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, usually they are too salty, mm. <laughs> but um, it's easy, it's easy step because you can make the same meal, but then with a vegetarian yeah. Um, a version of that meat product and then if that's okay with you you can also change to uh, cooking with tofu or or yeah lentils or other nuts like vegetarian uh, protein products maybe you want to uh, eat less crisps or candy and then think of, oh yeah, usually I'm sitting with the bag of crisps next to me on the couch. Mm -hmm. It helps to put some crisps in a bowl and you put away the, the bag. And then of course you can fill again uh, <laughs> the bowl. Mm -hmm. But we know from scientific literature that in the end, people eat less crisps if they just have We're one lazy. small portion. <laughs> yeah, because in the end, they are too lazy to yeah. get the, the, the bag again. And it even works better if you have the bag and you seal it very well and you do it in a box and in a closet. What also helps is to ask for social support. And that means that you, uh, you say to the people around you, okay, I want to 
eat less candy, so please, when I come in, don't uh, have that candy jar uh, right in front of me. Or, uh, for example, when you go to a party in Holland, it's very common to have cake at a party. And then you have to think of a way, like, okay, either you have to be prepared to reject the cake. Oh, no, I'm sorry, uh, I, I just had lunch. I'm not going to eat cake. Or you can say... Um, uh, oh yes, please, but give me a half portion of cake, for example. But it's very important that you prepare your your answer in that situation. And we even know that if you already write down that situation, if someone is going to offer me cake, I will ask for a smaller per a portion. We call it an if-then mm -hmm. plan. We know that the chance that it will be successful is much bigger. And in the case of like the cake, for example, mm -hmm. like if I think about myself, like for me it's even worse. Like if I take a small bite, then I want to you eat would it eat all. It all. Yeah. So like, oh. I would prefer to say no. Like oh, I already ate or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't even try it. No, <laughs> no. The, I know my mom. She that's her strategy. Just don't start yeah. because if you have one candy or it's, whatever, it's then done. yeah, it's done. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you know it from yourself, then it's a good. It's a very important strategy. And some people know, oh, when I, I cross that bakery shop and I smell, mm -hmm. smell it, oh, uh, I want to go in. And if you know that from yourself, just... Uh, don't go. Don't go there. Go, don't don't go, come near that bakery shop. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So you need to come up with strategies to, to survive this obesogenic environment, actually. Yeah. For example, in school canteens, but also in worksite cafeterias, or we work with uh, theme parks and zoos to have mm -hmm. a better offer. Mm -hmm. um, and it depends on the situation. Uh, for example, in a school canteen where children come and they, they will be there every day, um, the standard is healthier and more sustainable than, for example, in a theme park. Mm -hmm. uh, people are, go there maybe once a year and they... Uh, and they uh, want and they, to eat they fries. They want to eat fries. <laughs> okay, you can have fries, but then we try to manage that the portions are smaller. So, mm -hmm. if, for example, that the default portion is the smaller one in fries. Mm -hmm. And we know from uh, literature as well that people, they tend to take the default. If you order fries and you get a smaller portion and you didn't know that it was actually smaller than maybe a week earlier, if you don't notice, you just check in your brain, oh, I had fries and it was nice and yeah. there was a treat. Smile. And it's not that you think, oh, it was 100 grams less than before this, <laughs> this intervention or before they um, yeah. implemented this strategy. And um, okay, so let's say that we manage to change something in our diet. Let's say mm -hmm. I can... Uh, um, pass in front of my favorite cafeteria and manage not to buy the brownie mm -hmm. and I stick to it for like a week or two weeks. You're how great. Do we, how do we make sure that this new mm -hmm. habit sticks in time and we don't get back to how we used to um, do before? Well, the, the good part is that if that's your new habit, you don't really have to do anything special. If you are not buying the brownie over and over again, you're not buying that brownie, then in, in a way, you are becoming that girl that's not buying that brownie. You are smarter than that. So you are then, in a sense, identifying yourself with that person. So you don't have to do something special just 
try to um, stick to, the stick to that mm -hmm. changed uh, behavior. Yeah, that's actually how it works. Mm -hmm. And then it's not a problem if you just once go in and buy the brownie again. Sometimes you have the what the heck effect, like when mm -hmm. people have a diet and they took something uh, candy and then they think, oh, it's it's done. <laughs> it, this day is lost. Yeah. I can now eat whatever I want and tomorrow I start, a, I start over again. Uh -huh. You have to think of, this is normal. This is also a part of my behavior change experience that sometimes you have a, it's called a lapse. Sometimes you just, okay, you take the brownie. And then you think this is normal. And I just right away, you go on and stick to your new diet again. Mm -hmm. So don't uh, let that what the heck effect uh, come in, but just think, oh, this is part of the whole deal. Sometimes it, it doesn't work out and then you start over again. Super interesting. Thank you so much, Lisbeth. Yeah, you're welcome. I really learned a lot and it's super important like the, the work that you're doing. This was Lisbeth Felema, behavior change expert at the Dutch Nutrition Center. Okay, so we have come to the conclusion of this episode, but before ending, I would like to make a quick summary of what we learned. So first of all, it's very difficult to change all our diet all at once, so it's easier to take small steps. For example, we can pick one to three actions, as Becky Ramsing suggested, and try to follow those ones. Then we have to make it fun. So we can try a new bean every week, we can try out new recipes, and so on. You're going to get new recipes if you are subscribed to the Plant in the Future campaign. You can get our plant-rich recipes also from the Meatless Monday website, and these are just examples. Then you have to make this shift relevant to your personal experience. So it doesn't really work if you think that you want to change the way you eat because of the climate crisis, to have like a smaller uh, environmental footprint and so on. Or maybe, yeah, for some people it works, but for most of us, we have really to relate it to ourselves, so to our feelings, to our health, and really make it concrete. Like Lisbeth was telling us, like, think about, I want to fit in that pair of jeans again. So like something super, super concrete. And also taste is super important, as also Francesco reminded us. We have to make our plates taste good. And we have to find a strategy that works for ourselves. So really plan things ahead. Think about how concretely you want to make a change. If you know that you're gonna go to the bakery and get the brownie, just don't go to the bakery. Find out your strategy. And then look for social support. Tell your family, tell your friends. Invite also your friends to join the change that you want to make. Invite them to your place and you cook a vegetarian meal, for example, and so on. And also be aware of the food environment you are in, because sometimes the easiest choice is not the best one. So let's try to open our eyes and look at what we have around us. And then finally, I would like to thank, first of all, all our listeners. Thank you so much for supporting us. And if you like this episode, please share it with your friends. You still have time to subscribe to the campaigns. We're starting tomorrow. So you can find the link in the podcast description. And finally... Thanks to all our guests. So thanks to Francesco Scaglia, Becky Ramsing, Dana Smith, Lisbeth Felma. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on behavioral change and how we can eat better. See you next Wednesday with an episode all dedicated to beans. There is such a huge diversity in, in common beans. 
mostly, but also in chickpeas, in lentils. Um, it's not like one variety. We, we say lentils, but it's plural. So there are hundreds of varieties of lentils and most people know only two or three. This is Valentina Gritti and you have listened to Slow Food, the podcast. Ciao! Thank you.